Open your Bibles, if you would, to the 32nd chapter of 2 Chronicles. Tonight we study verses 9 to 23. Second Chronicles chapter 32, beginning at verse 9. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was besieging Lachish with all his forces and sent his servants to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my father devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. And do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servants said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, So the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you have delivered your people in so many ways, in so many times in years past. And we pray, Lord, as in the challenge of our faith today, we would remember who you are the great and majestic, almighty God that you are, maker of heaven and earth, and we would not be deflected from putting our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
If you grew up in the United States and you learned the history of our nation, then you know what the number 1776 means. That's the year when America's independence began. And likewise, if you were an English school child, you know that 1066 stands for the last time England was successfully invaded, the conquest of William of Normandy, 1066. Likewise, readers of the Bible should know the meaning of the number 701 B.C., that is. 701 B.C., it was the year when God sent his mighty angel and destroyed the great host of the Assyrian army that threatened Jerusalem. Hezekiah's victory over the Assyrian king Sennacherib was a spiritual battle resulting from faith in the face of the taunts of a God-denying world. Not that Sennacherib did not believe in God. Oh no, he believed in many gods, none of which he thought were a match for his sovereign might, where strength of weapons could never have succeeded. Judah's godly king prevailed through faith and prayer. Why? Because there is a God in heaven who answers the plea of faith, who is able to save by the strength of his arms. Well, Second Chronicles 32 began with news of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah, beginning with an assault on many of the fortresses that barred the way to Jerusalem. God had made Hezekiah strong, including a series of victories, as 2 Kings chapter 18 records, particularly over the nearby Philistines. And having been made strong, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him, 2 Kings 18.7. Well, Sennacherib consequently invaded. And he succeeded in taking over many of the outlying cities. And when that happened, Hezekiah lost nerve. He thought he would bargain with the Assyrians. So he he stripped the gold off the door of the temple and he emptied his treasuries to send gold and silver to the invader. But Sennacherib was not dissuaded. He apparently had decided to make an example of the Judean king. And so now the enemy was approaching and we saw in our previous passage how energetically Hezekiah responded. He He worked to repair the walls of Jerusalem. He arranged for a water supply for his city while denying it to the enemy. He trained and armed the people for the city's defense, verses 2 to 6. Now, while Hezekiah and his people were preparing Jerusalem, Sennacherib was still advancing through the nation. And one of the great fortresses that barred the Assyrians' way was called Lachish. It's actually a celebrated fortress. It appears frequently in secular annals. And it seems that it was only with great difficulty that Sennacherib was investing it. The invasion had slowed down. He was a busy emperor with far-flung concerns. And so he sent his emissaries ahead of him to Jerusalem to wage psychological warfare in an attempt to gain the city's capitulation. Well, what followed is one of the greatest apologetic contests that is found in Scripture. The chronicler says that Sennacherib, verse 9, sent his servants to Jerusalem. Now these servants are identified in 2 Kings 18.7 as the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh. Now he is, uh, the Rabshakeh is uh, uh, a military title, as are the others. And when these servants came, they also brought with him, we are told, a great army from Lachish. And this army appeared before the walls of Jerusalem, 2 Kings 18, 17. Well, standing before the city, their leader, the Rabshakeh, 
called out for Hezekiah to appear. Instead of coming in person, he sent members of his staff, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, as 2 Kings 18 shows, and crying aloud in the Hebrew language so everyone could understand him, the Rabshakeh began mocking Judah's king. He was scoffing at the Lord. He was launching a salvo of psychological warfare, seeking their surrender. Now, the chronicler gives a, a, a uh, abbreviated version of the Rabshakeh's speech, probably because he's aware that it's found elsewhere in scripture and he often you'll find the chronicler he when things are written particularly in kings with great clarity he will give a a, a more abbreviated account in this case the the uh the the scoffing speech of the rabshaka is found in isaiah chapter 36 and second kings 18 now as he began hezekiah's servants urged the rabshaka to follow the established professional diplomatic protocol and namely to speak in Aramaic. That was a decent thing to do. It was the lingua franca of the time and they were anxious of course that the people would not be able to understand the things that he was taunting. His intention was made very clear by his answer. Here's what he said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine, Second Kings 18.27, so we get his drift. His purpose is very clear. He wanted to terrify the people and undermine Jerusalem's morale. Now the Ramshaka's taunting speech can be broken into two portions. The first of which is dominated by the word trust. Look at verses 10 to 11. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting? That you endure the siege in Jerusalem. Is not Hezekiah misleading you? He may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. That's an interesting statement. It seems that the Assyrian emissaries were well informed because Hezekiah had recently made a speech to the soldiers to that very effect. It's in verses 7 and 8. But here's the thing. Here's what the Rabshakeh is saying. I'm well aware of this inspiring religious speech that Hezekiah has given, but how can you trust that it is true? I mean, you've got a lot on the line. And we're reminded of how Jesus once told his disciples that before we follow him, we must be willing to count the cost of discipleship. Luke 14, 28. For the people of Jerusalem, the cost of trusting Hezekiah and trusting the Lord was the dreadful danger of an Assyrian siege, which usually was replete with great suffering and almost always ended in slaughter. Now, the longer version of this speech in 2 Kings 18 adds that the Rabshakeh tempted the people to trust Sennacherib in the place of the Lord. Not only should they fear Sennacherib more than the Lord, but he was actually the one who could give, who could meet their needs and fulfill his promises. Listen to 2 Kings 18.31. Here's what he said. Make your peace with me and come out with me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. 
Uh, yet again, the Assyrian Cultural Research Department is very impressive since vine and tree and land of honey, that's also in the Second Kings account, these are catchphrases from the Old Testament for the bountiful life that God would provide. Philip Ryken notes what Sennacherib promised to deliver, life rather than death, a land flowing with wine and honey, was exactly what God had repeatedly promised to give to Judah. Well, Christians likewise will at times be tested to show our confidence that trust in the Lord will pay off. The world offers us pleasure and riches and power, all kinds of fleshly things. And if we're going to turn our back on all the things the world has to offer, well, we have to be sure that God's word is true. For instance, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But if we do that, we're going to be missing out on the treasures of earth. We have to trust that what Jesus said is true. Especially in times of persecution, the faith of a Christian will be tested. Can we trust the Lord to save us from affliction and, more importantly, to deliver our souls safely into heaven, if there even is a heaven? These are things we have to decide, whether or not we trust them. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his, his, his life for my sake will save it. Well, that's, a, that's quite a claim, quite a demand that Jesus made. And yes, he did. He is the Son of God. And so here's the question. Are we willing to suffer loss in the presence with confidence that a heavenly reward awaits us? We need to know in advance if we can trust these things to be true. Now, one way that Christians gain strength to believe and trust the promises of God is to see how accurately the Bible critiques the things that are offered by the world. Jesus pointed out that earthly riches are insecure. He says that moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, and Christians have the insight to go, you know, that's actually true. The Bible often says that all those pleasures that the world offers you, they will leave you empty. They will not satisfy you. And the Christian knows that critique is true as well. And yet ultimately our confidence to trust the Lord against the threats on the one hand and the temptations on the other of the world is our conviction that the word of God is true. I can think Early in my Christian life, I haven't experienced this in recent memory, but I remember some particular times when I'd be driving down the road and it would occur to me, oh no, I'm a Christian. Uh Uh-oh, I'm messing everything up. I'm not going to have the things that I was raised to want and the, 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 the glories of the world. And I had to work myself back. And I would always come down to this, is the Bible true or not? And I was able to say, oh, no, no, the Bible is true. And I would work myself back. I think the Lord, I haven't had that affliction in any time recently, but particularly as a young Christian, I would think that, oh, no, I'm a follower of the crucified Jesus. Well, we need to count the cross. And here's the point, how vital it is for every Christian to be settled on the authority and the inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. It is absolutely essential. This is why in places like Sunday school, Certainly in things like youth group, we will, we will show the biblical evidence. We will reason through the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture because it is the Word of God. That's our conviction. The Bible is God's Word, and therefore its teaching is all true. See, that becomes far more uh, than an academic dispute 
when the rabshakas of the world are reminding me of the price we must pay and the risk we must be willing to run to be a Christian. Well, one source of our confidence in God's word comes from the credibility of our spiritual leaders, parents, pastors, people like that. And for the people of Judah, their faith in the Lord rested in part on the reliability of Hezekiah, the king of the house of David. And the Rabshakeh knew this, and so then he levels accusations against the king. Look at verses 11 to 12. He's going to undermine their spiritual leadership. Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Now, once again, there is an impressive intelligence operation behind this scoffing speech. Because he's aware of the worship reforms that Jeremiah performed, Hezekiah performed when he first became king, which we've read about in previous chapters. Especially how he tore down the high places, the local shrines that so often led the people into idol worship. But he insisted and said that the sacrifices would only be offered on the temple on Mount Zion. Why? Because that was what God had taught in his word. Now, from the pagan Assyrian perspective, this was foolish. In fact, it was more than foolish. It was an affront to the God they were supposed to be worshiping. Why, Hezekiah's only making worship of the Lord more difficult. The greater the God, the more shrines he should have, the more opportunities, the more variety. And look at Hezekiah. He's taken them all away except for one. Could this man be trusted to speak for the Lord when from their point of view, The king was hindering the worship of God in that kind of way. Now here, as will happen, the worldly emissary misstepped because he was ignorant of the commands of the Old Testament, of the Bible, in this case the Old Testament. Richard Pratt writes, Sennacherib based his criticism of Hezekiah on the assumption that Israel's God could not be pleased with having only one altar. But fortunately, part of Hezekiah's reform, if you remember, was that he sent out Bible teachers throughout the land. And there's not the slightest doubt that he had shown God's word. He had taught them. And they would have known as they heard the Rabshakeh, they would have said, you know, actually, it's because of that that we can be especially confident that the Lord will, will save Hezekiah. Because you just, you're, look, you don't get it. You're pagans. You, don't, you didn't get the teaching of the Bible. And thank you for bringing it up. Actually, that's the source of confidence that God will inform. You see, his biblically informed hearers understood that Hezekiah was not undermining but serving the Lord. Now, similarly, the taunts of a hostile world will often fall short simply because uh, they realize how little, we, we realize how little they know about the actual teaching of the Bible. Nonetheless, I think the Assyrian speaker could nonetheless count on there being opposition to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. Pretty much any time you reform the church, there are people who are mad about you reforming church. You change the worship of a church, there are going to be critics. And the Rabshakeh is probably rightly counting on the fact that those critics will undermine the king. Ralph Davis puts it this way, the Rabshakeh likely knows that not everyone in Judah was smack happy over the king's reforms. He wants to stoke the embers of rancor and bitterness toward the king. Well, the primary lesson of this ancient assault 
on the trust of God's people delivered in a time of extreme duress as they face the potential risk of total destruction. Again, it shows how important it is for God's people to know their Bibles. We must know that the Bible is true. I said that earlier. We must be persuaded that the Bible is true. But having been persuaded of that, we must be informed about what the Bible actually says. We must know the Word of God, particularly as we know the promises of God that assure us of his willingness to help and to save. Here is the value, for instance, of Bible memorization. Because there will be times when, in the words of Philip Ryken, our inner Ramshaka will cause us to think that God is going to fail us too. And it's very helpful in times of doubt to have accessible to your mind the words of Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When the pinnacles of worldly tower are looking down upon us in scorn, the claim of Psalm 121 will settle our hearts. God, uh, uh, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, particularly that second statement. He's actually on a higher pinnacle than those of the scoffing world. He's the creator of heaven and earth. When the forces of unbelief launch their most serious attack, I think their most serious attack are those clever arguments design our confidence in God's word. We answer with the words of truth of Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What wonderful truths those would be to be resident in your heart and mind. And not only do the truths counter the lies of a threatening world, but a Christian has personal experience of the blessing that comes from believing they are true because they are. We not only know these things, we have experienced what Psalm 19 says about the word of God. Well, the Rabshakeh's assault on the people's trust in Hezekiah and in God formed only the first salvo of his psychological siege warfare. He continued by disparaging God himself. Why are you so foolish to trust the Lord? But then he says, let's talk about your God. Let's talk about Yahweh. Let's talk about whether or not he is able to save Jerusalem from so great a foe as the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib's emissary began with claims to Assyria's might that the people knew were pretty much true. Look at verse 13. This is all true. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of those nations, of the, of the nations of those lands, at all able to deliver the, their lands out of my hand? The answer is, well, no, they were not. And it assumed, of course, the conventional wisdom of the ancient world that uh, an invasion was a conflict between the, the gods of the aggressors versus the gods of the defenders. And the record showed that Assyria had, in fact, brutally conquered many nations, had successfully besieged many cities, and that argued that these various and sundry gods were not able to defend the people who worshipped them. And so he continues in verse 14, who among the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? 
Gordon McConville comments that Assyria had every reason to be scornful about the gods they so far had encountered and they had no reason that they knew of to think that the Lord would be different. They thought that way because they did not know God's word in Holy Scripture. Well, as he disparaged God, you may have noticed that the Rabshakeh was placing the Lord on par with all the false gods of the surrounding nations. But whatever else may be true, Christians do not believe that the God of the Bible is like any other claimant to deity. You hear it all the time. Skeptics will posture that Christianity is just another version of the various religions practiced throughout the world. But believers in the Bible know, you know, whatever else is true, that statement is false. Christianity is different. Only Christianity makes a claim that our Savior is the creator of all things. Only Christianity teaches salvation by grace through the blood of the Son of God that was shed on the cross for his people. Now, Christianity must be assessed as either true or false, but it cannot be dismissed as just another version of the other failed religions and faith traditions. Now, undoubtedly, Hezekiah and the people were strengthened during this time by the witness of a very great man from the annals of Scripture. His name is Isaiah, the son of Amos. It's awfully handy at a time like this to have your local pastor being Isaiah, the son of Amos. And one of the things that Isaiah was known for was the scorn, the very exceptional scorn, the high-quality scorn that he poured out on many occasions on the false gods of the nations. Probably the classic instance is found in Isaiah 44, verses 12 to 18. It is an epic takedown of ancient idol-making. In that passage, he noted how an ironsmith fashions iron into hammers and saws. He gives them to a carpenter who shapes a wooden block. And he points out that a tree is cut down and part of the wood goes into the fire to cook the meal. With the rest, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Isaiah 44, 15. Well, no wonder then the gods of all those nations were unable to defend their worshipers. They were just blocks of wood fashioned into deities. Isaiah 44, 17 says, Deliver me, for you are my god. The idol worshiper cries to what once had been part of a tree. That had been felled for burning. But as he continues, he notes how different is the God who made himself known to Israel, who promised to defend them while they upheld his covenant in faith. Of the true God, he continues, Isaiah 44, 24 to 26, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsels of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Isaiah 44, 12 to 26. So the other nations were trusting gods which they had made. But the believer in the Lord trusts the God who made him. And with him all things. Who among the gods, the Rabshakeh asked, could deliver against mighty Sennacherib? Well, the proper answer is that the Lord is not one among the gods, which were fashioned by carpenters and blacksmiths. No, he's the God who made Sennacherib himself 
together with the craftsmen who forged their idols. The Rabshakeh urged surrender. He said, look at verse 15. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And on he goes, along with the other Assyrian servants, saying, verse 16, still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. They went so far as to draft a document. They had their own version of Martin Luther's 95 Theses and they, their little idolatrous mocking of the true and living God and they, as it were, they were going to nail it to the chapel door of Jerusalem. That's not what they did, but they handed it over to cast contempt on the Lord, verse 17, the God of Israel, to speak against him saying, like the gods of the nations of the lands who had not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver the people from my hand. Well, these things, we are told in verse 18, the Assyrian party shouted with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. You know, one gets the impression that the Rabshakeh had run out of arguments. He just keeps repeating in a louder tone with different kinds of scorn the same arguments. And the fatal flaw was obvious to everyone with the biblical faith in the Lord. The chronicler puts it in verse 19. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. It was all a wasted argument. It was a category error because the Lord of Judah was not the work of men's hands. Well, by this point, the Assyrian emissaries must have been growing hoarse. And the situation was clear enough. Either the king and the people of Jerusalem believed what the Bible says about the Lord, or they did not. The scenario beneath the walls of Jerusalem is similar, I think, to that which faces the followers of Jesus in our post-Christian Western world. Often we wish the champions of neo-pagan secularism would simply be quiet that they would cease their varied, various attacks, all of which are on the same theme. The Bible is not true. They ridicule Christian doctrine and morality. They call it evil instead of good. Sadly, like the Rabshakeh, they will not be silent. And so Philip Ryken observes, therefore it will take all the intellectual and spiritual courage we can muster to resist the constant attacks that contemporary society makes on the God of the Bible. Well, so it was for the people cooped up in Jerusalem while the heralds of pagan unbelief continued with their scoffing. I think a point had arrived that was similar to what the prophet Elijah observed during his conflict with the priests of Baal. The people must simply make their decision just as we simply must make ours. Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Well, the Rabshakeh had delivered his apologetic, two prongs. It was aimed at the stupidity of trusting this God and also a, a mocking of his sufficiency to handle the great power of Sennacherib. And we might, I think, imagine Hezekiah 
hearing all this and finally saying enough was enough. And, and maybe he would have gone to the walls. He had a large Bible in his hand. And he would have, today it would have been an internet. It would have been a Facebook debate. He would have had his verses. And probably the Rabshakeh would have been critically informed. He would have had manipulative arguments. Hezekiah may have had a biblical standoff, debating it point by point. But that's not what he did. He knew that there was a time when debate achieves nothing, which is probably why he had ordered the people to be silent. Isaiah 36, 21 says, he had commanded, do not answer him. Well, the time had come for the Christian answer to be given through steadfast adherence to our faith. The time had come for the ultimate apologetic to be offered in the form of prayer. That's the response that Hezekiah gives. His apologetic will be delivered through prayer. Now, the chronicler's account of the epic scenario that unfolded is actually brief. Isaiah's version tells us that the king's servants went into Hezekiah and they told him the words of the Rabshakeh and they brought with them the letter which mocked the majesty of the Lord, Isaiah 36, 22. Isaiah 37, 14 to 20 records the model prayer. It's one of the great model prayers of the Bible that Hezekiah offers in which he calls on the Lord not only to deliver his people from the dire threat, but more importantly, to defend the honor of his own name before the scoffing of the world. It's very instructive that that's what he puts his emphasis on. It's the glory of God that's at stake. Here's a, 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 a statement of it in Isaiah thirty-six seventeen. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, he says. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. And Hezekiah acknowledged the dreadful power of the Assyrian foe. He noted the military exploits that had terrified the world. But he simply exercised the privilege that every believer has, the privilege of supplication. He asked the Lord to help his people, help them to trust in his word and to survive. Here's how he concludes in Isaiah 37, 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. It was a God-centered prayer focused chiefly on his glory, the glory that would come by defending his trusting people. Well, the chronicler's record, perhaps because he knows we already have Isaiah's account, is more simple. Verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. It simply says, the prophet and the king, they went and prayed. And equally brief is his announcement of how God answered. Verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria, verse 21. Isaiah 37, 36 gives it a little bit more fully. There we read, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. There's an interesting confirmation of this great deliverance. It comes from the official annals of the Assyrian royal court. 
There's a record in Sanskrit of all the great conquests of mighty Sennacherib, and among them is the boast that he had shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. But you know what? No mention is made of him ever capturing the city of Jerusalem. Well, the chronicler briefly notes what happened in the aftermath to the humiliated king of Assyria, verse 21. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came to the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. Now that event, also confirmed by ancient history, actually did not occur until 20 years afterwards. It shows that God's justice may grind slowly, but it does grind surely. Well, the chronicler concludes, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. You see, here's the Christian answer to the scoffing apologetic of worldly unbelief. We point to the Exodus. And we say, you know, we've been here before, and God sent the angel of the Lord, and he slew the firstborn of Egypt, and then he parted the Red Sea, and Moses and the believing people passed through, and then the waves drowned Pharaoh and his mighty host. We remember young David and how he felled the giant Goliath because he took the Lord at his word. And yes, we point to the year 701 BC, which now you know if you didn't know it earlier. When godly Hezekiah, strengthened by the prophecy of Isaiah, he led his people to trust the Lord and his mighty power, and they witnessed a supernatural deliverance in which a great host was slain. For this renowned act of faith, Hezekiah was richly rewarded, verse 23, and many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. Well, Christians today, we look back to an even greater deliverance, the greatest deliverance of all when God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to free us not from the threats of a Sennacherib, but to free us from the guilt and bondage of sin. And he did it by shedding his own blood on the cross. And all the elements of the 701 B.C. deliverance were present. There was a scoffing world. They were mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross. And yes, we are told there were angels. Jesus said there are legions of angels, although in this case they were forbidden to intervene. They strained in mute readiness because the Son of God must die, that his people would live. And there also were the first disciples, like the, the soldiers and their families that were defending the walls of ancient Jerusalem. They were trusting God's word. And there's those first disciples, they found their vindication in a greater miracle yet, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Hezekiah was enriched and honored for the victory of his faith. But my friends, our reward in Jesus Christ is far greater. Uh, Paul exclaims, ex- explains how The trials that we face today are answered by the sufficiency of God's gift through his son. He says, for this light and momentary affliction, that's what we face today, this light and momentary affliction, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, riches far greater than those awarded to Hezekiah back then. Well, if godly Hezekiah reminds believers today of the Christian's final apologetic, 
which takes place when we pray and God answers. We think of the writer of Hebrews. I want to close with the advice that he gave on how we answer, how we survive and respond to the trials of our faith. He was writing to believers in the early church, and they were afflicted just as we're likely to be tested now. And he gave what I like to call the all-purpose advice. When hostile powers threaten our trust in the Lord, here's what he wrote. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1-2. You know, of one thing, you may be absolutely sure, O Christian, that Jesus loves you. And he died for your sins. Look to him. Stand on the rock beneath his cross. Look to the one that you can trust absolutely. And then we remember Jesus' teaching, not least of which are those that state that that we should have absolute confidence in God's word, the Bible. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. There's the greatest proof that the Bible is true, the authoritative teaching of Jesus himself. We look to Jesus. We look to the Savior. We hear the shepherd's voice that speaks in our hearts. And we will not yield to the siren songs of temptation. We will not tremble at the Rabshaka challenges to our faith today. No. We will trust the Lord of heaven who sent his son to die for our sins. We look to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Father in heaven, we thank you. That as we read our Bibles, these are, this is not some other story. It's our story. The great line of believers that in 701 BC included Isaiah and Hezekiah, today that line has come to this year, 2022. And we are the people of God. We are the ones challenged. We are the ones who the world would tempt to lead astray. We are the ones that would threaten, that we would deny our faith or be quiet about it. And so, Father, it's our story that we're reading here. It's our situation. You give us the proof. We may trust in your word. Why should we trust you? Because your word is true, because Jesus is the Lord who died for our sins. And moreover, we see, yes, Lord, you are not an idol. You are the living God. You save everyone who trusts in you. Oh, Lord, let us trust in you, whatever our trials And then let our witness tell the world that they too can be saved by looking in faith to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.